0: Amen. Thank you you for being here today as we are getting ready to uh, turn in our Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1000. Romans chapter 5, pew Bible, page 1000. And as you guys are turning there today, I want to uh, try and give you an opening illustration to kind of help you understand of where we've been and where we're going. And if you have taken a summer vacation and you've done a big road trip, you understand what it's like to drive through the Midwest. You understand the repetitive flatlands that is Kansas. This year, we drove to Colorado. And when you think Colorado, you think mountains. But you forget there's this entire state that's about, uh, my best guess, it's about 45,000 miles long, it feels like, called Kansas. And you have to drive drive a long, long, long time through Kansas to finally get to Colorado. And as you're driving through Kansas, you are speaking about your vacation in the future tents. When we arrive, when we arrive, when we arrive, we will set up our tent. When we arrive, we will see the mountains. When we arrive, you will appreciate how much oxygen you have right now because it will not be the same. But eventually, you move from the future tense of when we arrive to the present tense of now that we are here, now that we've arrived in Colorado, now that we're here, we can set up our tent, now that we're here, we can go see the mountains, now that we're here, let me explain to you what a bear box is and why we have to put our food in it. And so we go from the present tense of when we, when we, when we, to eventually we go to the, or the future tense, to now the present tense of now that we have, now that we have. And for us, as we've been going through Romans, Romans chapter one through four, it's been future tense of when we get justified, when we are justified, when we are justified. But in chapter five that we're starting today, Paul is now going to turn the page And we are no longer driving through the Kansas of judgment. We are now saying, now that we've arrived, now that we have been justified, let's talk about what that means. And so chapters 5 through 8, that we're not going to be looking at today over the rest of the year, Paul is going to switch from talking about when we are justified to now that we have been justified. And he's going to be talking about the implications of this justification on our present and our future life. And so today, as we start chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 6, we're going to be talking about three implications of our new justification that we've received through Jesus, okay? We're going to be looking at three things that God has done in our lives through Christ. The first thing we're going to see today is that because we have been justified, we now have peace with God. The second thing we're going to see today is that we now have grace from God. And the third thing we're going to see today is that we have hope because of God. Since we have now been justified, we have peace, we have grace, and we have hope. And so let's take a look at our first point today, that we have peace with God. This comes out of Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to say that is, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the first result? Like Paul says, now that we've arrived, now that we're here in Colorado, now that we've made it to our campsite, what is the first thing you need to be aware of? The first thing that Paul wants you to know is now that you've been justified by faith, What do you have? You have peace with God. Okay? Now, for some of us, this may be a revelation. We didn't know we didn't have peace with God. Like, it would would make no sense for Paul to say, now you have peace with God, if you already had peace with God. Obviously, this is something you gain. And so then the question is, well, what did you have before you had peace with God? Well, you had God's wrath. Like, think about Genesis 1-3. through God creates Adam and Eve. God creates the world. Everything is good. Adam and Eve have peace with God, but then when they sin, not only is their relationship with God broken, their relationship with each other is broken. There is now frustration, animosity, hostility. God drives them out of the garden, and he sets up an angel with a flaming sword saying, you can never return, okay? That is not peace with God, that is wrath from God. That is what is revealed. And so then we fast forward to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. What does it say? The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. That is where we are. That is our condition. The reason it's such a big deal that the first thing we receive when we become Christians is peace is because we don't have peace. Next week, Jacob's going to talk about Romans 5.8, that why we were enemies of God, he died. For us, while we were sinners, God died for us. And so, let's let's take this this deeper. Though Romans chapter one verse eighteen says, not only do they know, but they suppress the righteousness of God. So, not only are they in wrath of God, but they are in act of suppression of God's righteousness. And if you want to visualize what it means to suppress the knowledge of God, to suppress the righteousness of God. I had a professor one time tell me, imagine you're standing in a swimming pool, the water's up to here, and I give you two basketballs, one in each hand, and say, keep those basketballs underwater. You could do that. We could even have a conversation while you do that. But eventually, Uh, that's not going to be an easy task. Your hands are going to be getting tired. Your arms are going to be getting tired. That's what people are doing. They are walking around actively suppressing the knowledge of God, searing their conscience day in and day out. And it is an exhausting way to live. But now that we are here, now that we have been justified, we have received peace with God. And so let's ask the question, how did that happen? Well, Paul answers it. He says, we have received peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how did Jesus secure our peace? Did he just go and have a chat with God? Did he, did he go pull him aside and talk to him and say, hey, these guys are cool, don't worry. No, no, no. Colossians 1, through 22. Paul says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. The way we have peace with God is through the death of Jesus Christ. He paid the price that we could not. He died on the cross for our sins. And so since we're talking about broad concepts, we're talking about the concept of peace, I want to drill down a little bit deeper and talk about how the death of Jesus brought us peace. Because in the church, we talk about this word atonement, okay? But atonement is only half of the equation. Atonement means making payment for, or recompense for something. If, if, I was, um, if I was the child of some celebrity and I was some rich brat, and I got a hotel room, me and my friends, and we just trashed the hotel room because we don't care, we're rich, you know. my credit card's gonna be billed $5,000 for that debt. That, that, that payment is gonna be atonement. But are me and the hotel gonna be okay now that that bill's paid? No, the hotel is going to put up a do not serve, this person is banned. See, there's another word called propitiation, and what that means is an appeasement of wrath. Not only did Jesus pay our debt, not only did his death give us atonement, as in he paid our debt, but he gave us propitiation, which means that God's wrath was appeased and turned away to where now God has Peace with us. It would be like in the same scenario if I were to trash the hotel, my dad were to grab me by my ear, drag me back into the hotel, and say, Not only is he going to pay the debt, but he's going to work every weekend for free for the next year cleaning hotel rooms, and I'm paying to send all the cleaning staff on a cruise to make up for my bonehead son. Like, not only is the debt paid, but now the wrath has been appeased. And so, Christian, if you are standing here today, knowing that you have peace with God a lot of things happened to get from you being at wrath with God to now being at peace with God a debt had to be paid propitiation had to happen through the life of Jesus and now we are setting here in this first reality of justification that we have peace and so now we have to ask the question so what like that's the question every preacher has to answer is okay I have peace with God great what does that mean we have to ask the question why does it matter that we have peace with god and i want to assert three three situations uh, three verses to try and back up this claim that if we lose track of the fact that we have peace with god then we focus a lot more on the problems of the world that really aren't problems. If we have peace with God, then the problems of the world really aren't problems. And the reason they're really not problems is because the only person's opinion that matters in our lives is not the world's opinion, it's not our boss's opinion, it's not anyone's opinion, it's God's opinion. And if we have peace with Him, then most other things really don't matter. So let me show you three verses to try and explain why understanding we have peace with God is so important. John 16, 33, Jesus is talking. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you don't realize that you have peace with God then the troubles of the world are going to pull you away and distract you when they really have no business doing that because Jesus has already overcome the world. Listen, I know it's frustrating when your coffee pot breaks. I know it's frustrating when your check engine light comes on. I know it's frustrating when a bunch of moles come to your yard and tear up your yard and it looks just awful. I get that, but if I don't sit there and realize that I have peace with God, and because I have peace with God, whatever problems are going to happen, God has overcome those problems because I'm reconciled to him. If I don't have that perspective, then things that aren't actually big deals become big deals to me. And you may be saying, Calvin, I'm not worried about moles in my yard, you superficial man. I'm worried about the real things. I'm worried about people who have their finger on the button of the nuclear bomb. I'm worried about plague and pandemic. I'm worried about corrupt politicians. I'm worried about life and death things. Let's go back to John. Or no, Matthew. Sorry, let's go back to Matthew. Let's go back to the Bible. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, Don't fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. See, if we don't remember that we have peace with God, we will get very worried about the reality of our death. We spend a lot of time suppressing the reality that we will all in this room die someday. And if we don't have peace with God, we fixate on trying to keep ourselves alive as long as possible because that's our biggest priority. But Jesus says, at the end of the day, every single one of us will die. There is no one in this room who will escape death. So don't worry about how you're going to die, who's going to kill you, if you're going to die in your sleep or whatnot. The only thing you need to worry about is not the person who can kill your body, but the person who can kill your soul. That's the person you need to worry about. And Jesus says, if you have peace with the person Who can take your soul and throw it into hell, then really, whatever happens to your body is kind of a wash because you're going to die anyway. And so, if we have a proper understanding of peace with God, then we don't have to worry about our death. We don't have to worry about what happens to us in this life because the one who can destroy our soul, we have peace with him. And then, third and finally, let's use Paul, Romans 8. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who in their right mind can come to a Christian and condemn us? God is our judge and he has declared us innocent. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is a resounding Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so, Christian, I want to assert that if we don't remember that we have peace with God, we very much focus on things that are going to take us from that peace. My grandma used to make a statement that I think summarizes this very well, that if it doesn't matter 100 years from now and it won't affect your relationship with Jesus, then it really isn't a problem. I mean... How important is that for us to understand that if it doesn't affect our relationship with Jesus, if it won't matter a hundred years from now, then we are really worrying over something that we don't need to worry about. And so the first result of being justified that we see today is the peace with God that we get. And so let's look at our second result of being justified now, which is grace from God. We'll look at the first half of verse two. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand now there's a lot of big church words in that verse so i want to simplify what this verse says and then we can then elaborate on it what is paul saying we have obtained access to grace That, if you had to summarize this verse or boil it down, Paul's saying we've obtained access to grace, okay? The second result of our justification, you didn't have grace, now you do. But what is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor that God gives us. When we become children of God, it says that we are clothed in the spotless garments of Christ. We have been taken from death to life. And no longer does God see us as enemies, He sees us as His children. And the children receive unmerited favor. They receive grace upon grace upon grace. Okay? Which, Paul doesn't... The way Paul describes grace reveals at least for me a weakness in how I understand grace. How does Paul describe grace? He says, We have obtained access through Him by faith into this grace... In which we stand. See Paul says the foundation of his life is grace. The thing that he stands upon is grace. I don't know about you but the way I view grace is I view grace kind of like uh, my three-year-old daughter Lucy. How she's walking down the sidewalk trips, scrapes her knee. And then she runs to mom and mom puts a band-aid on her knee. I view grace in my, in my weakness as like a spiritual band-aid to cover our our spiritual boo-boos that we get but that's not what paul says paul doesn't say grace is some cheap insurance that comes along that whenever we sin it just slap a band-aid on it it's okay paul says grace is the foundation upon which we stand if we did not have grace upon grace upon grace we would not even have a foundation as believers upon which we stood And so let me give an illustration of this. A few weeks ago, Jacob talked about Pilgrim's Progress, which next to the Bible is the greatest book ever written, and everyone should read it. He talks about Pilgrim's Progress, and in the story, Christian goes to a place called the House of the Interpreter, which sounds a lot more mystical than it is. But essentially, Christian goes to this house, and in this house, he sees these different scenes that describe to him what the Christian life is. And one of the rooms he walks into he sees this evil-looking man and he sees a fireplace against the wall and the evil-looking man is taking jars of water and pouring him onto the fire over and over and over but the fire is never extinguishing. Christian doesn't understand how this is possible. And so then the person takes him through to the other side of the wall where the fire is burning and there's a man in white and he has these jars of oil and he is constantly pouring the oil on the fire. And the illustration that Christian is given is that Satan is always trying to extinguish our salvation. Satan is always trying to douse water onto the fire of our salvation. But Jesus is always pouring the oil of grace to fuel our salvation so it will never be extinguished. And the point that is being made here is if Jesus were to withhold his grace, were to stop pouring grace on our souls, in one second Satan would extinguish our salvation it is grace that on which we stand it is not grace on which we use as a spiritual band-aid and so how do we receive this grace it says we receive this grace through Jesus by faith when we put our faith in Jesus Jesus then brings us to the father and we go from being under the law to being under grace and that is the grace on which we stand And so the question we need to ask now, much like peace, okay, I stand on grace. What does that mean for me? How do I do anything with that other than just like, got it, I'm on grace now. Uh, I, I think it's important to understand grace is a gift. God gives it to us, and now it is our choice on what we do with that gift. If all of us as Christians have been given a foundation of grace to stand upon, I think the question we need to ask ourselves then is, are we effectively utilizing the grace that God has given us, or are we wasting the grace that God has given us? And so I want to give you three kind of just examples or encouragements so that way you maximize the grace God has given you, not waste the grace that God has given you. Ephesians 4.1 God brought us out of death and brought us into life so that we could walk in a manner worthy of our calling. God did not save you, and God did not place you on a foundation of grace so you could keep sinning and living the life that you wanted. In fact, that's what Paul says. Should we sin so grace may abound? May it never be. You know, God brought us out of death to life, and he placed us on a foundation of grace. And so we need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, not keep sinning the way we once did. Ephesians 2.10, God created for us to do good works in Christ Jesus that he has prepared for us to do. God saved us and brought us into this foundation of grace, not so we could keep living and doing what we wanted, but rather so we would now do the good works that Jesus created us to do. Every single one of us, if we are Christians, have been placed on this foundation so we can do good works for Jesus, not so we can keep doing the works that we want to do. And then finally, first Corinthians fifteen10, we don't want our grace to be in vain. Paul says, "But the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles, uh, though I was not or though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So uh, Paul says, he does all this so that the grace he received." was not in vain. And Christian, I'm not saying that you have to work every second of every day or you're wasting grace. What I am saying is that every single one of us has been brought from death to life, placed on a foundation of grace. And we've been placed there for a reason. We've been given this gift. Let us stand on this foundation, not lay down and take a nap on this foundation. And so we've seen today that the first result of our justification is that we have peace with God. We have seen today the second result of our justification is that we have grace from God. Now we're going to look at the third result of our justification, which is hope because of God. Let's look at the rest of verse 2 through verse 6. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that afflictions produce endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us, because God's hope has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. And so, the third result of our justification is that we now have hope. And Hope is a very church word as well, but it's a church word that we now use in the, uh, the secular world. I hope I get a raise. I hope I won the lottery. I hope, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever happens to me. Like, these are hopes that are, like, not really grounded on anything. But what Christian hope is, is Christian hope is hope that is grounded on the future promises of God. That God has said he's going to do something, and then our hope is grounded on the future promise that we know that God will do this thing that he says he will do. And so that is what our hope is. And so what does Paul boast in? Look at what it says at the end of verse 2. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so where have we heard the term glory of God in Romans before? Glory of God, glory of God. Oh, I know, Romans 3.23. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so what is Paul saying? Paul is saying... We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short of Godlikeness, likeness of, of not sinning, of, of not doing what God wants us to do. But we know through Jesus, we now boast in the fact that one day we will not fall short of the glory of God. One day we will meet the standard that God has for us. We will be as he is. That's an amazing thing to think about. And so Paul celebrates the fact that one day he will be in the glory of God and he will be in the God-likeness that he has failed and he has fallen from. And every single one of us can also hope in the glory of God. And what Paul says in verses 3 through 4 is that our hope is not based on circumstances. In fact, our circumstances actually increase our hope. Because the worse things get, the more we can cling to the promises of God, and the more we can cling to the promises of God, the more we put our hope in God. And so that's why Paul says it doesn't matter if things are going good or bad. If we have affliction, we rejoice because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. So actually, if affliction causes us to grow in our hope, then affliction is something we can celebrate in because it causes us to be more grounded and more uh, more hopeful if you will and so Paul says it doesn't matter what's going on whether things are good or bad because all roads lead to hope and this hope will not disappoint because it's grounded on God that's what he says in verse 5 this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us the reason Paul knows that one day he will be in the glory of God, that he will be like the glory of God, he will have God-likeness, is because God has poured out his love into his heart and has given him the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Paul does not put his hope in anything other than the foundation and promise of what God has said. So let's, let's think, about like, um, think about like Noah and Noah's Ark, okay? You have Noah... Noah is put on a boat, and he's on a boat, and, and let me ask a question, don't answer it out loud, just think the answer in your head, how long was Noah on the ark? Okay, so probably all of you guys in your head said 40 days and 40 nights, which is a weird way to answer that question, because we don't say that for anything else, but the reason you said 40 days and 40 nights is because in the Bible, in Genesis seven twelve, it said rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. But Noah wasn't on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. That's just how long it rained. Noah was on that ark for about a year, okay? So think, think about that. Think about that. Noah, you're Noah. Every day you wake up for about 150 straight days, you wake up and look out, and it's just blue sea. It would be pretty hard to not just have, like, a panic attack one morning of, like, the water's never going to go down. I'm going to die on this boat with all these animals. I cannot deal with any more days of a hippopotamus. Like, it would be very easy to freak out while you're on that boat. What was the only thing that kept Noah going? What kept Noah going was the promise that God said I want you to get two of every animal because we're going to start over. So that means at some point those waters are going to go down. So what kept Noah going for that year he was on the boat was the hope that God was going to be true to his promises. Let's think about us now. God has taken us and he has put us on a foundation of grace. Let's call that the ark the wrath of God is being poured out over everyone, let's call that floodwaters, and as the wrath of God is poured out on everyone, the waters rise, and what is it that keeps us safe? It keeps us safe in this boat of grace that God has put us on a foundation of. We have peace with God, so we're not going to be affected by these floodwaters of judgment. We have grace that is protecting us from this wrath, and the only thing that we have left is this hope that one day what God promised to happen will happen. The same way Noah sat on that boat for a year, believing in the promises of God. As we stand on this foundation of grace, as we put our trust in God, as we see the waters of wrath pouring around people, and knowing we have peace with God, we have to put our hope that God is true to his promises. And so I want to give you two admonishments, two things to think about. The Bible is full of promises. It is full of promises in a specific context, okay? If you don't know the promises of the Bible, and if you don't know the context of these promises, you are going to make one of two mistakes. Mistake number one, you are going to hope for something that is not promised. And that is going to be a very sad day for you. There are people right now who are sick, and they have put their hope in the fact that it is always God's will to be healed. That is unfortunately not in the Bible. They have put their trust in something that God will not do, that God is not guaranteed. God tells Paul, my grace is sufficient in your weakness, not put your hope in the fact that I will heal you. So the first mistake we make, if we don't know the promises of the Bible, then anyone can come and offer us a false hope, and we can put our trust in that hope, and we will be devastated emotionally when it turns out that our hope is not grounded on reality, This is why we have prosperity preachers. This is why we have false teachers. Because people don't know the promises of the Bible, and they don't know the context of the promises of the Bible. Christian, do not put your hope in something that is not promised. That is a dangerous game to play. There is a second mistake that we make as well, Christian. Sometimes we don't hope for things that God has promised. God has promised us many things, and if we're not aware of them, we can't put our hope in them. I don't know about you, but Jacob and I have probably heard this statement at least, I don't know, two or three dozen times as we've done pastoral counseling as we talk to people. People tell us the line, I need to clean up my life before I can come to God. Yes, yeah, yeah. Logically, that sounds right, but there is a hope that God has given us that people don't realize and they have not put their trust in it and it is devastating to them. God has told us Revelation 22:17 Come whoever will let him take the water of life Romans 10:13 anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved the woman found in adultery in John 8 was told go and sin no more not sin no more and then come back to me okay There is a very real hope that many of us miss because we don't know that god has promised it to us It's important for us to know the promises of the bible So that way we can be grounded in those promises if we put our hope in something that is not there We have a hope that disappoints if we don't put our hope in something that is there Then we are missing out on a great promise that god has given us But if we put our hope In the promises that are here, that are for us, that are guarantees for us, we can weather the storms in the boat of grace, in the foundation of grace that God has given us, grounded in promises, knowing that God will not disappoint because his love has been poured out for us through the Holy Spirit. Today we have left behind the past tense of when we are justified, when we are justified, when we are justified. And now, church, we are in the present tense of now that we are justified, now that we are justified, now that we are justified. We've looked at three attributes of justification, peace, grace, and hope. But in the same way that it would be a shame to go to Colorado and not see the mountains, it would be a shame to miss how we receive this peace, grace, and hope. Look at your Bible. Look at what, how we receive this. We have been declared righteous by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have obtained access through Jesus by faith into this grace. And then verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who gives it to us. God is the author and perfecter, starter and finisher and sustainer of all these attributes. The reason we have peace with God is because of Jesus. The reason we have access to God is because of Jesus. The reason we have hope in God is because God has poured his Holy Spirit into us. God is the access of our peace. God is the object of our peace. And God is the sustainer of our peace and hope and grace. What a shame it would be for us to focus on these attributes and yet not focus on the God who guaranteed and secures and sustains these for us. Christian, if you are in this room today, I want you to focus on the peace you have. I want you to focus on the hope. I want you to focus on the, on the grace. I want you to focus on all these things. But I want you to remember that it is God who secured this for you. It is God who sustains you in it. And it is God who is the prize that you will receive at the end. He has done every step of this for you, Christian. It is just your job to follow along and be obedient in the process. But if you are in here and you have not put your faith in Jesus then I am very sorry to say that you do not have peace with God. You do not have grace from God. You do not have hope in any promises. What you have is you have wrath from God. You have judgment from God. And you have only hope of condemnation. But that's why we have the gospel, the good news. That's why it is called the good news. Because Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect sinless life. And he died the death that you and I deserved. And he rose again, fulfilling the law, fulfilling everything that God had done for him and proving that he was God's Messiah. And if you repent of your sins, put your trust in him, you will be forgiven. You will be brought into peace with God. You will be brought into grace from God and you'll be brought into hope through God. Pray with me.